You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. And I want to ask yourself a question in just a moment, and that question is this. Has there ever been a time in your life when you gave an answer that you thought was a really impressive answer, but it turned out to be wrong, and it revealed more about you than you ever wanted to. I remember I was about 17 years old and I was at a, at a dinner and at this restaurant and there was a girl at the table that I was trying to attract her attention. And we were there with her family and some other people. And she said to me something, I think she said, what do you like in space? And I thought that was an odd question, but I could answer it. And so I started to go into what I thought about the space shuttle program and some things like that. And after I had finished that, she said to me something that indicated to me I was never going to get her attention again in any positive way. She said, I said, what do you like in spice? She was asking me what the spice level I wanted and what I wanted in that at this particular restaurant. I had given a totally wrong answer, thinking it was impressive and finding out that I'd revealed more about myself than I ever intended to. And that's kind of what happens to Simon Peter in this particular passage. You see, Jesus takes Simon Peter's humiliation at thinking he's giving an impressive answer, and Jesus takes his humiliation, though, and turns it into an opportunity to answer a crucial question. Peter answers the question wrong, the implicit question. He's, he's asking it that, that here, what about how many times does somebody have to forgive? Peter gives the wrong answer. But Jesus takes that wrong answer he gives and turns it into a lesson. And that lesson tells us that godly forgiveness is gritty forgiveness. If you remember back to the text that Jamal preached about last week and the text immediately before this, that was about when somebody in the church sins, authentic repentance opens the door to restored relationship. But Peter starts thinking at this point, and he's wanting to ask a question, but it's about him being impressive, and it starts running through Peter's mind, how many times do I actually have to renew a relationship when my brother or sister repents? And I kind of imagine in my sanctified imagination that what Peter does is he pulls out his calculator out of his robe and he starts calculating. And Peter knows that in his world, the religious leaders of his day, they said you had to do three times. You had to give forgiveness three times to your brother or sister if they sin against you and then ask for your mercy. You have to forgive them three times. But but Peter realizes Jesus has talked a lot about forgiveness. He's talked a lot about grace. So maybe I need to go beyond three. And so Peter starts calculating. And Peter, in essence, says, I see your three. I'll raise you three and add one. This is extreme. Peter has gone from three, which is common in his culture, to seven times. And Peter swaggers over to Jesus and he starts to, he gets Jesus's attention. Now remember Peter, Peter lacks a filter between his feelings and his face. If he feels it, it comes out his face. And so Peter goes over to Jesus and he said, how many times should I forgive? Seven, seven times? That's extreme, but it's limited. 
And what we see here is that's the best you and I can do. It's forgiveness that is extreme, but limited. But Jesus gives an answer that causes Peter to realize that though he thought what he was saying was impressive, it was actually not impressive at all. It was wrong and it fell far short. You see, Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven, or it can also be translated 77 times. Thankfully, the number is not the point because if it were, that would be bad news. I don't know about your family, but there are weeks that we have hit 77 times by lunch on Sunday. By sundown on Monday, we're already at 490. Now, some of you, I know, you're spending all this socially distancing time and you're on Pinterest posting these things. You've made a two-story treehouse for your kids out of toothpicks and toilet paper rolls, all those things like that. I don't know about you, but there are weeks in the midst of this that we're just glad to get to the end of the day with the same number of people as at the beginning. I think many of us in our families right now, we're hitting 490 pretty quickly. So thankfully, it's not about the 490. It's not about the 77. It's not about the number of all at all. In fact, this is a figure of speech that is about not doing the math. That's what Jesus is trying to indicate. Don't do the math. Don't be counting. So Peter has come over to Jesus with his shoulder a little bit down, ready to get that pat on the back from the Son of God. Maybe, I think Peter thinks, maybe I've even outgraced God at this point. I'll come to Jesus, I'll say seven times, and surely what Jesus will say to me is, no, Peter, that's this great. You can stop at five. And instead, Jesus says, 77 or 70 times seven. The number is not the point. The point is that there is not to be a limit. Now, when Jesus says this, he's actually drawing from the Old Testament. He's actually drawing from Genesis chapter four. If you'll remember in Genesis chapter four, Cain murders his brother Abel and God, he he puts a curse, we might say, on Cain, but he also graciously gives Cain protection. And he says to Cain, if anybody kills you, that person, you will be avenged sevenfold against that person. But in the end of Genesis chapter 4, we find something else, a descendant of Cain named Lamech. Lamech says, if anybody so much as wounds or bruises me, it won't be seven times vengeance, it'll be 77 times vengeance. Do you know what Lamech is saying in essence is, there's no limit to my rage, to my anger, I will take you all the way to death if you so much as touch me. Now, Jesus is taking those numbers, seven and 77 or 70 times seven. And just as Lamech said, I will take you all the way to death. Jesus is saying, you're going to forgive all the way to life. Lamech said he chased the one who bruised him all the way to death. But you as my followers are called to chase the one who bruises you, who wounds you all the way to life. For Lamech, In the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 4, his way of life was revenge. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, your way of life is forgiveness, is forgiveness. Now, this is a hard truth. This is a rough truth. This is a gritty truth. But godly forgiveness is gritty forgiveness. He says, there's not a limit. There's not a limit. You're to forgive people all the way to life. 
And Jesus follows this truth as he so many times does with a story. And it's the story of a slave. And he starts the story with these words. He says, the kingdom of the heavens is like. In other words, this is what life looks like under the reign of God. This is what it looks like. And it's a story of a king. Now, it's a story of a king who has given his slaves the freedom to manage his finances. This often happened in their world. A powerful person might actually give a slave, a bond slave, the freedom to be able to manage their finances. But as Jesus tells the story, it's quite clear that it's fictional and not factual. And here's how. He runs across this number. He says, a slave owed to the king 10,000 talents. Now, you may hear that and think, okay, 10,000 talents. What is that? The people then, when they heard that, they said, ooh, this is not going to end well. Because you see, no individual person could actually owe that much money. Let's go through their financial system. Let's think about it for a moment. A denarius in their day was one day's wages. A talent was 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days wages. And so this amount of money was an incomprehensible amount. You see, a king, when he paid a tribute to the emperor, it stopped at about a thousand talents a year for a whole kingdom. This one individual owes 10,000 talents. If he worked every day of his life and turned every bit of money he ever earned for the entirety of his life over, it would take him 193,000 years to pay off a debt of 10,000 talents. 193,000 years. There's no payday loan that's going to fix this. This is a culture where there's no such thing as bankruptcy. This servant, this slave, is utterly at the mercy of the king. Have you ever been there? Been at a point in your life where you are utterly at the mercy of someone else? You've messed up so badly. You've gotten under so deeply that there is no way you're ever going to get out of this in your power. And that's where this slave is, at a place where only mercy can get him out. And it says in chapter 18 and verse 26 that he fell down before the the king, and it uses a term that could be translated worshipped, worshipped. He went down before him in a way that indicates to us, the reader, that the king in this parable is none other than God himself. And as he's falling down before the king who represents God, the man lies. He says, give me enough time and I will repay this debt. He can't. There's no way with all the time in his life and the next life and the next life that he can possibly pay back this debt. He is in a desperate situation. But look what the king does. The king, rather than doing what the man deserved, which was what the king declares, that you're going to be sold with your family and all your goods to pay at least a little bit of what you owe, the king has compassion, has pity, and he forgives him the entirety of 193,000 years worth of debt. You can imagine 
this man at this moment in this story. It's as if he's had this weight upon him that's been weighing him down and suddenly he's free of it. It feels like he can fly because suddenly he's free. The debtor has been set free. But what will he do with his freedom? And that's what the rest of the parable tells us. It says that this man found That word is important. He didn't just happen to run across this other individual, this other slave. He went and he found this slave who owed him, a fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii, three months wages. This debt of three months wages? It cannot even compare to what the other slave owed. It can't even compare to the debt that he has been forgiven. One of those is the cost of a major car repair. The other one's the cost of running a kingdom. But he has this other slave who owes him a hundred denarii. And that other slave takes the same position and makes the same plea that this slave has. He went down before him and begged and said, give me time, I will pay it back. The same plea that was made to the king by the one who owed 193,000 years of debt. The only difference between them is that one was debt-free and the other one wasn't. That's the danger of privilege and power and comparison often in our lives where we have slightly more than somebody else. We're slightly better off in some way, not because of our own efforts, but because of grace. We're slightly, we've gotten more than somebody else. And the moment we do, we are all so prone to lord it over that other person and to see ourselves as better than them instead of seeing all the good in our life as a gift of grace. And to use that to press others down instead of to use it to lift them up. That's what this slave does. He, the only difference, they're both slaves. It's just he happens to be debt-free by grace. And then it escalates into violence. He grabs the man by the throat and he begins to choke him and then says he's going to throw him into prison. Now notice what that indicates. He's going to throw him into prison. The guy's never going to pay it off if he's in prison. There's no way he can pay it off from prison. This slave doesn't want payment. He wants vengeance. That's what he wants, is he wants vengeance. But then some other slaves, some fellow slaves, see this exchange, and they know what has happened on both sides of the story, and they're disturbed by this, and they go to the king with their concern. They take their burden to the king. And the king calls in this ungrateful slave and he sentences him to endless torment. He sentences him to be tortured until he pays off the debt, which he can never pay off. He is sentenced to endless torment because this servant hasn't simply misused his master's resources. He has abused his master's mercy in a way that places him outside his master's grace. And then Jesus ends the parable with a mic drop moment. 
He says, so also my heavenly father will do to each one of you if you don't forgive your sister or brother from the heart. Boom. You looking for that? That's what you got. And then the next words after this is Jesus saying, it says in the text that Jesus went away. You better believe he went away. He just said something radical that has left people wondering how on earth do you live in this way of forgiveness for those who have wronged you. And so Peter had wondered about this question. How many times do I forgive? And he'd embarrassed himself with what he thought was an extra dose of generosity because Jesus' answer to how many times is as many times as your brother or sister asks for mercy. Why? How on earth can that be God's expectation? Why would God say this? And it's because nobody, nobody has wronged me as much as I've wronged God. There is no debt that somebody can owe to me that exceeds the amount that I owe to God. Because for every one of us, our selfishness, our rebellion against God, it has accrued a debt of sin that only mercy can get us out of. That debt is so great. Christians show mercy to others because God has shown mercy to us. And so in some sense, I think the underlying question under Peter's question was, at what point do I get to write off that person who has wronged me? And Jesus' answer in essence is, at what point do you want God to write you off? When? You see, you can't follow Jesus into eternal life if you don't also follow him into forgiveness. Now, right now, there's a few of you who are thinking, there's some people that need to hear this message. There's some people, maybe a sojourn, they need to hear this message because they've wronged me and they've hurt me. And you may even be scrolling down at the bottom of the Facebook live feed saying, I wonder if they're watching right now. I hope they get this. And if that's the case, that very attitude shows that you're closer to the one who demanded payment from his fellow slave than you may want to admit. Because our place is not to evaluate the forgiveness of others. It's to examine our own. Godly forgiveness is gritty, hard, rough forgiveness. So what do we do with this truth? It's a heavy truth. I hope you feel the weight of this truth. And there's three things I want you to get from this. And the first one of those is simply this. Your forgiveness of others reveals whether or not God has forgiven you. Your forgiveness of others reveals whether or not God has forgiven you. See, God's forgiveness, it is a gritty forgiveness that we're called to imitate. And gritty forgiveness, it doesn't get you into heaven, but it does reveal whether or not heaven 
has gotten into you. To be a Christian is to be a person of forgiveness. And if you've received God's grace, you give grace to others. And if you can't give grace to others, it may indicate that you haven't experienced grace yourself. All of us, all of us are tempted to think that we don't need as much forgiveness from God as we really do. I was recently flipping through an old, some old journals I'd kept. And as many of you know, all of our children were adopted as older children from some really difficult circumstances and situations. And I ran across something I'd written about an incident that I'd, I'd forgotten about it. We always make a big deal in our household about when you do something wrong, if you're a parent, the child, whatever, you say, I am sorry. And the other person says, I forgive you. And then we just let it go. At that point, it's simply, it's done with. Once we have forgiven, we really emphasize that. And I remember one of our children when she was eight, she just, she didn't want to admit that she needed to be forgiven. She didn't want to participate in that. It had never been part of her categories before that you can really be forgiven and then it's done. It's done. It was as if she thought, if I admitted that I sinned, then I'm going to be cut off from this family. So we worked on that and worked on that. And I remember one particular time that we'd worked on that and finally she had admitted I did this wrong and gotten forgiven. And, and she was sitting on my lap and began just pounding her head against my chest saying, I don't want to be forgiven. I don't want to be forgiven. And I think about, that's all of us sometimes. That's all of us sometimes. We don't think our debt to God is nearly as great as it is. And we don't want to participate in forgiveness because we don't see the magnitude and the wonder of what God has done for us. We don't want to say, I've sinned and really believe that God forgives. We don't want to say to others, I've sinned against you and receive their forgiveness. And we pound our head against the chest of our heavenly father. And we say, I want to be forgiven. I don't want forgiveness if it means that I have to forgive others. And I want you to really think in your heart right now, is there someone, anyone, that you are refusing to forgive wholly and completely? What are you going to do about it? Your forgiveness of others reveals whether or not God has forgiven you. And if you in this moment, you realize I'm not a person of forgiveness. People don't know me as a person who loves and forgives and shows mercy. People just don't know me that way. If that's you, don't despair. Don't turn your your darkness inward on yourself and despair. Instead, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. And ask for his forgiveness. And from the wonder and the beauty of his forgiveness, you forgive others. And recognize that forgiveness, it's not a one-time event. It's a habit. You may in one week, 
you may get to 490 times of forgiving the same act or event that somebody else did because you have to re-forgive it every time it comes up in your heart and wells up in your soul that you want to hate that person. And you have to say, no, I choose forgiveness. It's the life of the Christian is that we choose forgiveness over and over and over. And some of you are living in a prison with no bars because you're refusing to forgive. And it's coming out in bitterness toward others. It's coming out in anger toward your friends and your roommates. It's coming out in all these these ways that are eating at you. And hear this. Forgiveness is releasing a prisoner and realizing that the prisoner was you. Forgive to be released from this prison. The person that I think has taught me the most about this in his writings is a man named John Perkins, who's a leader in certain parts of civil rights and then moving toward racial reconciliation. His brother Clyde was murdered by a police officer. And then later, John Perkins was arrested during a peaceful protest and he was tortured by a sheriff and his deputies. He had a fork shoved up his nose. He was kicked repeatedly in the groin. He had a gun put to his head. He was beaten. And after all of that, he forgave those who had perpetrated this. And he wrote these words. He said, reconciliation is not so much for the people I encountered. It's really for myself. I saw hate in the eyes of the people that tortured me, and I could feel myself needing to hate them back. I felt a weight. I began to recognize that and to really hear the scripture that says, unless you can forgive those who trespass against you, how do you expect your heavenly father to forgive you? And that leads us to a second point, a second application I want you to get. And it's the saying yes to forgiveness doesn't mean saying no to justice. You see, in the life of John Perkins, it was precisely his forgiveness that drove him to seek justice. And that's a beautiful model. And it's a model we actually see in this parable. Because often we overlook those other slaves who saw this and then went to their king to plead for justice. But don't overlook those slaves. They saw injustice occurring in the realm and the domain of their king. And they went to their king and they cried out to him and he gave justice. Saying yes to forgiveness doesn't mean saying no to justice. If someone has abused you, they've misused you, they've violated you, there are real consequences in courts, in church, in cities, whatever it may be. There are real consequences and there is nothing ungodly about pursuing those consequences. You can forgive someone and still seek justice. Because when you forgive, what you're doing is not releasing the reality or the need for justice. What you're doing is releasing your own desire for vengeance. You're recognizing that even if we achieve some modicum of justice in this life, it's only partial. It can't take back what was said to you. It can't take back what was done to you. It can't bring back people from the dead. 
Justice in this life is always partial. We should seek it, but it's partial. When we forgive, what we're saying is, I release the ultimate justice in this situation to God. I refuse to hate you. I refuse to long to be avenged, to take revenge on you. I let go of that and I forgive. I forgive. I release my yearning to see you hurt in the way that you hurt me. I release you to the justice of God. The last point I want you to get from this is that this gritty, godly forgiveness is only possible because of the cross. Some of you are sitting there saying right now, you're saying, you don't know what was done to me. You don't understand what I would have to forgive. And you know what? You're right. I don't understand. You don't understand things I've had to forgive. I don't understand the things you've had to. But there is one who does understand. And it's the Christ of the cross who took all the pain of what was done to you. He took it on himself. Isaiah chapter 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And he was the sacrifice. He was the substitute for all the sin that you have done. He was the one. He is the one who took your place and took your place and on himself took your pain as well. You can trust him. You can receive God's forgiveness. That's the gospel. He took your place and you can trust him and be forgiven. But not only are you forgiven when you trust him, you have somebody there who understands your pain and your sorrow. And the cross gives an all new dimension to this. Because remember in Jesus' dialogue with Peter, it was basically forgive your brothers and sisters when they repent, when they turn from their sin. But on the cross, what Jesus did is he forgave even those who didn't repent. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's only possible because of the cross. And some of you, the reason why you can't forgive is because you keep rewinding to your hurt. You go back to that. You watch it again in the theater of your mind. Then you go back and you do it again. And you go back and you do it again. Now, you know what? Rewinding isn't wrong. You're just not going far enough. Rewind all the way to the cross where Jesus knows the pain that you must forgive. He knows it. So stop rereading those text messages that hurt you. Stop retelling the story to your friends over and over and licking your wounds together. And instead rewind to the cross and see that Jesus knows your pain. In April of 1994, Rwanda faced a political Crisis, And in that crisis, there were Hutu extremists who slaughtered at least 800,000 moderate Hutus and members of the Tutsi people over about three months. And after this horrible tragedy, almost a million people slaughtered. In the early 2000s, something unthinkable began to happen. And it was as criminals 
acknowledged what they had done, they set up six reconciliation villages where the survivors and the criminals now live as neighbors. And one of them said, now we are neighbors and we share everything, including food and drink. Wow. Now, there are real questions about whether these reconciliation villages truly and authentically work that have been raised. I don't know if they work. Here's what I do know. I know it works in the church, the people of God. We are called to be a reconciliation village in our city. We are called to be a reconciliation village in the the world around us that is broken and doesn't know what forgiveness looks like. We are a reconciliation village where those who were once alienated, those who were once separated, they eat and drink. They feast together. They feast together. Forgiveness. It's hard. But gritty and godly forgiveness is possible. Not because of what I can do. Not because of what you can do. But because of the cross. And this gritty forgiveness, it doesn't get you into heaven. It does reveal that heaven has gotten into you. God be praised. Each week we feast together. We who have been alienated from one another and alienated from God, we come together to eat a meal. And we aren't partaking of that meal until we can come together again because the whole point of it is that we are together. We do demonstrate visibly that we are united and reconciled. But each time that we do, we take the bread and reminded that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And we take the cup tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice of the wine. The wine is marked by twine. And we invite anybody who is a believer and a follower of Jesus to join in this meal, knowing that we are reconciled together because God has reconciled us. We can forgive one another and forgive others because of what God has done for us. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus so we live a life of gritty forgiveness. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit Sojourn Church dot com slash midtown